Before we begin, I want to share a brand new type of true crime podcast with you. From the creator of the podcast, Dark Topic, comes a brand new podcast, Crime Machine. Jack Luna takes you into some of the most infamous true crime stories from a different perspective. I hope you'll check it out. Jack is an amazing writer, a compelling narrator, and a good friend of mine. Here's a sneak peek of Crime Machine. Enjoy! We all think we know Eileen Warnos, but we've never spent much time in the woods with her as a girl. The Manson murders are well documented, but never has anyone sat with Charlie as he waited for his disciples to return from the helter-skelter. This podcast will take you there, to moments in time within crime. Moments in crime, how about... Dinner with Dahmer or, or breakfast with Bundy? Yeah, yeah, a BLT for brunch with BTK. Crime Machine puts a microscope on the moments in crime that are often glazed over, steps away from the bird's-eye view typical of most true crime pods, and puts a section into a fishbowl to be thoroughly examined. And it's not just serial killers we're revisiting here. We have ghost stories rooted in truth, alien abduction claims that will make grizzled cross-country truckers pull over for the night. Crime Machine helps us to view the story from a fresh angle, as a fly in the wall, enables us to provoke said walls to finally speak. This is not a fictional podcast, by the way. It's just a fresh take on the true crime genre, which, let's be honest, is a little oversaturated. Crime Machine rings it out a bit. Crime Machine has returned to optimal temperature. Mr. Luna, it appears we have completed cooldown. Are you ready to enter Crime Machine? Oh, I am. But are they? Crime Machine is a true crime podcast written by Jack Luna and produced by Sam Swenson. Subscribe to Crime Machine wherever you consume your podcasts and remember to tell everyone what you heard here today. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for the 150th episode of Once Upon a Crime. I can hardly believe that I've been releasing an episode every week for over three years now, and we've now reached episode 150. Thanks to all of you who've been with me since the beginning, those of you who are new listeners, and especially those of you who support the show by rating, reviewing, following us on social media, becoming Patreon subscribers, or sharing the show with others. We could not have gotten this far without you. Thank you. We're in the series Fugitives from Justice, where I tell you stories about criminals on the run from the law. This time, I'll share two separate cases of women who became part of a very small and exclusive club. Women who made the FBI's 10 most wanted list. First up, a woman from South America meets an American businessman, and they quickly marry. But before long, the new bride would be uncovered as a con artist and a black widow. This is the story of the fugitive Nazira Ugaldi. Michael Cross was taking a well-deserved vacation. He was a successful entrepreneur, running two businesses in Nevada, Lovelock Motors and Keatsky Auto Sales. He'd taken his lifelong love of cars and turned it into not one, but two profitable businesses. Cross owned one residence in Reno, Nevada, 
and a vacation home in Northern California. He would also purchase a ranch in Lovelock, Nevada, located about an hour and a half east of Reno. In early 2000, Frost took a vacation to South America, traveling to Costa Rica. He became so enamored of that country that he would also purchase a vacation home there. But he not only fell in love with the country, but with a woman he would meet while on vacation. Nazira Ugaldi, age 35, was a dozen years younger than The Bachelor, and he quickly became smitten with the dark-haired beauty. Nazira was charmed by Michael Cross as well, and before long, she made plans to move to Nevada. The couple married soon afterwards. They made their home in Reno, and Cross added his new wife's name to his ranch in Lovelock. She started a janitorial service in Reno, while Cross ran his two auto businesses. But within a few years, Cross began to notice some financial irregularities in his business accounts. Upon closer examination, he discovered that his wife had embezzled funds from his businesses in excess of $250,000. He filed for divorce, which was finalized in January of 2008. Nazira returned to South America, but unknown to Cross, she had already embarked on another financial scam before they divorced. Reportedly, Nazira became acquainted with an insurance agent in Reno and began a sexual relationship with him. She took out several life insurance policies with his company, including policies to be paid to her beneficiaries, an adult son and daughter, upon her death. Sometime after Nazira returned to Costa Rica, the insurance agent received a call from her. She told him that she was terminally ill and wanted to make sure that her policies were up to date. He told her he was so sorry to hear about her illness and assured her that the policies were active and would be paid out to her daughter Natasha Johnson and son Runar Johnson upon her death. So he was very surprised when a few months later, he received a visit from Nazira's daughter, who reported that her mother had died, but not of an illness. Natasha told him that her mother had been murdered in Costa Rica and presented him with a death certificate. He expressed his shock and sadness at this terrible news and told Natasha that it would take some time to file all the required paperwork necessary to pay out the insurance claim. But Nazira was alive and well, and still living in Costa Rica. Apparently, she believed she could run a financial scam to fake her own death, have her adult children collect the insurance money, and get away with hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash. Meanwhile, Michael, perhaps no longer as enamored of Costa Rica after his disastrous marriage, wanted to put his vacation home on the market. In July of 2008, Nazira told him she had a buyer for the house and traveled back to Reno to discuss the sale. On July 31st, Mike Cross was at his vacation home in Chilkoot, California. Nazira, his ex-wife, came knocking on his neighbor's doors, telling them that Mike was ill and she needed help getting him into her car to drive him to the hospital. Michael was incoherent and the neighbors were understandably worried. Nazira said she was driving him to a Reno hospital, about a 40-minute drive away. Later, wanting to check on Mike, they called both his and Nazira's cell phone numbers, but got no answer. They began calling hospitals, but were unable to find anyone by the name of Michael Cross admitted to any area hospitals. They called the police. Cross's daughter, Lindsay, began trying to contact her father, and at first, Nazira was answering but said he was incapacitated and couldn't come to the phone. 
Later, another unidentified man began calling Michael Cross's friends, claiming to be him. He told them that he was recovering after a stroke. Police began investigating after several people reported Michael Cross missing. They tracked down Nazira. She was found at his home in Reno. Her bags were packed and sitting near the door. They inquired as to where her ex-husband could be located, and she kept changing her story regarding his whereabouts. Finally, she told them a shocking story. Michael Cross, she said, had died suddenly of an illness. But instead of reporting this to anyone, she had taken his body to his ranch in Lovelock, Nevada, and buried it. That's what he would have wanted, she said. The police then had her take them to where she'd buried the body. Investigators noted that it appeared as if after he was hastily buried on the property, Nazira had driven over the grave several times with her car. They took her passport and told her not to leave until they had finished with their investigation. Michael's daughter, Lindsay Cross, questioned why her father's ex-wife wasn't arrested or at least held on suspicion of murder, but was informed that there was yet no evidence that a murder had occurred and explained that unlawfully burying a body only accounted to a misdemeanor. When the body was exhumed, it was discovered that Michael Cross had multiple nicotine patches covering his body. Lindsay Cross told the authorities that her father did not use nicotine patches. He wasn't a smoker. Police suspected that Nazir Cross had either drugged or poisoned him at his vacation home in California and then driven him to Reno. There she was captured on surveillance cameras entering a Walmart store while her husband remained in the car. In the store, she purchased the nicotine patches. This seems like an odd detail, but in my research, I discovered that an overdose of nicotine, whether ingested or absorbed into the body, at high levels can cause respiratory failure, slowing of the heart rate, and can result in seizures or coma. Investigators theorized that Michael Cross had most likely died at his home in Reno, after which Nazira had taken him to the ranch to bury him. Incredibly, it took a full eight months before the state lab returned the toxicology report to investigators. The report stated that Michael Cross had indeed been poisoned. In 2009, Nazira Ugalde Cross was charged with first-degree murder in the death of her ex-husband. But by that time, she was long gone. It was discovered that Nazira Ugalde Cross had several aliases, including Nazira Maria Ugalde, Nazira Maria Johnson, and Maria Ugalde Alfaro. She had several passports in her possession and had used one to flee the country after she was questioned about the untimely death of Michael Cross. It was also discovered that hours after murdering her husband, she had turned up at the office of her former lover slash insurance agent. Yes, the same insurance agent who had been told that Nazira had been murdered. He, of course, was shocked to see her. Nazira explained away her reported death as a case of mistaken identity. She told him that she had been questioned by the police about the death of her former husband, which she said had occurred after he had, quote, taken some pills, unquote. Upon questioning by police, the insurance agent said that he and Nazira then had sex, and he helped her buy some prepaid phone cards. After that, he reported, he never saw her again. The FBI issued a federal warrant for Ugaldi, charging her with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution and she was placed on their 10 most wanted list. They suspected she had returned to South America and was hiding either in Costa Rica or Peru. To try and flush out the fugitive, 
the Nevada Attorney General's office began looking into the life insurance scam and charged her two adult children, Natasha and Runar Johnson, with fraud. Runar had also fled the country, but Natasha was arrested and questioned. She finally agreed to provide agents with information about her mother's possible whereabouts in exchange for a plea deal. In exchange for her cooperation, she was only fined $1,000 for her part in the scam. No payouts were made on the life insurance policies. But Nazira remained elusive, evading authorities for almost six years. During this time, she was featured on the television show America's Most Wanted multiple times. In 2009, John Walsh listed her as number seven of the program's top ten fugitives. It wasn't until 2014, when the story about Michael Cross's murder and Nazira's flight to avoid prosecution was rebroadcast, that a tip came in leading investigators to Peru. In June of that year, 48-year-old Nazira Maria Ugalde Cross was arrested by Peruvian National Police, ending the manhunt. They were working in conjunction with the FBI, who quickly sought to have her extradited to the United States to appear on charges of first-degree murder. While our last female fugitive killed for financial profit, the next story details a case of murder where the motivation was jealousy. Brenda Delgado believed she had met the man of her dreams. Brenda, 29, was studying to become a dental hygienist when she met Ricardo Ricky Paniagua. Ricky was a doctor, a dermatologist, and Brenda fell head over heels for him. They began dating in the fall of 2012. But some of Brenda's classmates said she seemed obsessed with her boyfriend. One said upon meeting their fellow classmates for the first time, they all began introducing themselves. While all the other students talked about their families, where they grew up, etc., when it was Brenda's turn to speak, all she talked about was her boyfriend, Ricky. As the students became more friendly, Brenda would constantly talk about him and about the bright future they would have together. She often talked about her boyfriend's financial prospects saying that dermatology was the highest-paying medical specialty. Unknown to Ricky, Brenda was cyber-stalking him. She tracked his location constantly by using the GPS in his phone. She also read his emails and text messages. In January of 2014, Brenda showed off an engagement ring to her classmates. They congratulated her on the happy news. But just weeks later, she came to school very upset saying that her boyfriend's mother had told her to stay away from her son and said she needed psychological help. It seems like perhaps Ricky's family noticed how obsessed she was with him as well, and it didn't sit right with them. Or maybe they discovered how she was spying on him. In any case, by the summer of 2014, Ricky Paniagua ended the relationship. Brenda's mother would later say that her daughter told her they had broken up because Ricky had, quote, personal issues he needed to take care of, unquote. She thought her daughter was doing okay and noted that she was continuing with her studies. She didn't think Brenda was unreasonably upset over the breakup. But while she might not have shown it outwardly, inwardly, Brenda was just as obsessed as ever, and when Ricky began dating a new woman, she seethed with jealousy and anger. Ricky ended his relationship with Brenda in the summer of 2014, but they reconnected briefly in the fall. By February 2015, however, 
Ricky ended the relationship completely. A month later, he met Kendra Hatcher. Kendra, originally from a small town in Illinois, attended college in Indiana before enrolling in dental school in Kentucky. After she became a licensed dentist, she settled in Dallas, Texas, and began her career as a pediatric dentist. Kendra was 35 years old and had been divorced for several years. She was a dark-haired beauty with a bright smile that quickly put even her youngest patients at ease in the dentist chair. Everyone loved Dr. Hatcher. Ricky Paniagua saw Kendra's photo on a dating app and quickly decided to contact her. They set up a time to talk and then met for coffee. Before long, the young dermatologist and the pretty dentist were an item. Paniagua had no idea that his ex, Brenda Delgado, was still watching his every move. She was still tracing his movements through his cell phone and obsessively stalked his social media. When she began seeing pictures of her ex with his new love, she became enraged. Brenda began complaining to her classmates and friends how her ex had moved on. She shared all his social media updates with them, pictures of the happy couple on vacation, wine tasting, dressed up to attend a formal dinner, and snuggled together on the couch, Kendra wearing a sweatshirt with the words, I'm with Dreamy, printed on the front. They really were a strikingly beautiful couple, and Brenda couldn't stand it. At first, her friends thought this was just the inevitable heartbreak of one half of a failed relationship moving forward first. They expected that Brenda, young, attractive, and with her whole future ahead of her, would soon find herself in another relationship and leave the past and her bitterness behind. If only. Instead, Brenda began to plot and plan to get rid of her rival. She began approaching people that she thought could help her make that happen. She first asked her cousin, Moses Martinez, to help her scare Kendra. She offered him money to hit Kendra with a baseball bat. He refused. One of her classmates, Jennifer Escobar, had long been a sounding board for Brenda's complaints about her ex-boyfriend. Brenda was super obsessed with Ricky, she would later testify. Brenda talked about wanting to eliminate Kendra Hatcher. Jennifer, at first, thought this was just angry talk, until the day Brenda offered her drugs, a car, and $2,000 to kill her rival. She declined. Brenda didn't give up her plan. As a matter of fact, she was even more motivated to either kill her rival or her ex-boyfriend after seeing the couple's relationship become even more serious. In the summer of 2015, Ricky Paniagua was scheduled to attend a conference in San Francisco. He took his new girlfriend along with him, and during their time there, they took pictures together, posting them to Facebook. Of course, Brenda was following all of these events online. Then, she saw that Ricky had taken his new girlfriend to visit his parents, something he had never done with Brenda. This was the last straw for the jealous ex-girlfriend. At about that same time, Brenda met a young woman named Crystal Cortez. Crystal was 23 years old and a single mother with a six-year-old son. Within two weeks of meeting Brenda, she agreed to take part in Brenda's plan to get back at her ex, Ricky, someone Crystal had never met. Brenda came up with the plan and also had enlisted a third person to participate. Brenda had convinced 35-year-old Christopher Love that she was connected to a Mexican drug cartel. 
She promised him that if he agreed to be the trigger man, she could provide him with money and unlimited drugs. Brenda, Crystal, and Love then began following Kendra Hatcher from her apartment building to her workplace. Together, they plotted how to kill her. Brenda's initial plan was to inject her rival with heroin, but Love said shooting her would be the quickest and easiest way. Brenda was still monitoring Ricky's phone messages and learned that he was planning to take a vacation with Kendra. They were scheduled to leave for Cancun, Mexico on September 3rd. Brenda told her accomplices she wanted the dentist dead before that happened. On September 2nd, Brenda asked a friend, Jose Ortiz, to borrow his car, a 1996 Jeep Cherokee. She then gave Crystal the car to pick up hitman Christopher Love and drive him to Kendra Hatcher's apartment building, located at 1700 Cedar Springs Road in Dallas. Crystal had been paid $500 by Brenda to drive Love to the parking garage. She brought her six-year-old son along for the ride. At about 7.30 p.m., Kendra arrived home, driving her car into the building's parking garage. Crystal would later testify that Love waited for Kendra to drive into the garage and park her car before approaching the vehicle. She said she heard Kendra yell, Help! Help me! and then heard a gunshot. Love emerged carrying a purse and some other items. Later that evening, she received a call from Brenda Delgado asking her if it was done, and she told her it was. Dallas police received a call about a shooting and at 7.45 p.m. arrived to find Kendra Hatcher dead. She had been shot in the back of the head. Investigators discovered surveillance video from the night of the shooting that showed a dark-colored Jeep Cherokee parked in the garage and leaving just after the shooting. Crystal Cortez is clearly visible sitting in the driver's seat. The surveillance camera footage was shown on the news, and Jose Ortiz recognized the vehicle as his. He contacted the Dallas police on September 4th, two days after the murder. Ortiz told the investigators that he'd loaned the car to Brenda Delgado. That same day, she was contacted and questioned by police. She told them that she had allowed a friend, Crystal Cortez, to use the vehicle. When Crystal was questioned, she quickly admitted that she had been the driver of the car. At first, she said she'd been paid by Brenda to drive a man, whose name she did not know, to rob someone. She did not know anyone would be killed. She said that the man had threatened her not to talk to the cops and also threatened her son. Crystal was arrested and booked into jail. Police identified Christopher Love as the shooter and also that Brenda Delgado had planned the murder through information received by a confidential informant. They issued warrants for the arrest of Brenda Delgado and Christopher Love. The day after Crystal Cortez was arrested, shots were fired from a vehicle into the front yard of her family's home in Dallas. The family believed that this was a warning for Crystal to keep her mouth shut. Both Love and Delgado fled the area soon after the murder. Love was picked up a month later and charged with first-degree murder. But Brenda Delgado, a citizen of Mexico, had disappeared into that country, authorities believed. On October 2nd, one month after the murder, Brenda Delgado, now a fugitive, was charged with capital murder. (music) 
On April 6, 2016, Brenda Delgado was placed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. She was only the ninth woman in history to receive this designation. Perhaps this infamous list possesses some type of magical quality, because two days after making the Most Wanted list, Delgado was captured. She was arrested and placed into custody and held in a Mexican jail to await extradition. In October, she was finally extradited to the United States to be tried for murder, with the stipulation that she would not receive the death penalty. Brenda Delgado was returned to the U.S. almost exactly one year after the murder. In exchange for her cooperation with investigators, Crystal Cortez agreed to plead guilty and received 35 years behind bars for her part in the murder plot. She first testified at Christopher Love's trial in October 2018. Lead prosecutor Kevin Brooks told the jury, Christopher Love agreed to commit the murder for drugs and money. This was not a crime of spontaneity. This was a premeditated and well-planned-out crime. Dallas County District Attorney Glenn Fitzmartin added, He's the worst of the worst criminals. This was not a mistake. It was a choice of execution. The jury agreed and found him guilty of capital murder and sentenced him to death. Brenda Delgado was tried in June of 2019. Once again, Crystal Cortez testified and told the jury that she and Brenda started planning the murder soon after they met. Ricardo Paniagua also took the stand. He said he had no idea that his ex-girlfriend, Brenda, was stalking him. He thought they had ended the relationship on friendly terms and was shocked to discover that she had been watching him and Kendra and had plotted to kill her. He did say, however, that he often bumped into his ex, mostly on the trail where he ran, as was his normal routine. At the time, he had just assumed it was a coincidence. Kendra's mother, Bonnie Jameson, testified at how happy her daughter was in her new relationship. Even though she'd only known Ricky a matter of months, Kendra called just days before her murder to tell her mother she was bringing Ricky to Illinois to meet the family. She had already booked airline tickets for them on September 28th, soon after they were to return from their Mexico vacation. Kendra was excited to show her boyfriend what life was like in a small town. She loved her hometown and couldn't wait to share it with him. Kendra's mother said the whole family was devastated by her murder and didn't understand how Kendra could have been murdered in cold blood simply over jealousy. We didn't know evil like this existed in the world, she said at the sentencing hearing. On June 7th, the jury deliberated just 20 minutes before finding Brenda Delgado guilty of plotting the murder of Kendra Hatcher. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime, but I'll be back next week with another story about a criminal on the run from the law. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Once Upon a Crime is now available ad-free on Stitcher Premium. If you're a Stitcher Premium member, you can get episodes of this show and many other of your favorite podcasts ad-free each week. Go to stitcher.com for information or download Stitcher in your app store. Then make sure to subscribe to Once Upon a Crime while you're there. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.